And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guests are Tobe Johnson and Brett Eichenberger, co-producer and director of the new documentary film, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Revealed. Tobe is the author of the Al Moon Lab books and researcher of all things related to Bigfoot. With over a decade of research and his own experiences, he has dedicated his work to investigating the relationship of Sasquatch and the paranormal. Brett is an award-winning filmmaker with over 25 years of experience working in the film and video production industry. His work includes the feature films Light of Mine and Pretty Broken. He also does commercials, short films, music videos, and documentary shorts. Guys, thank you for being on our podcast today and welcome. Thanks for having us, Jeff. I appreciate it. So how did you guys hook up in the first place so you could make this film together? So. Uh, I'll try and keep the long story short. Um, but basically Jill, the producer and I decided that, you know, when the, the, the pan, the pandemic started, we decided this is a great time for us with everything slowing down to do a Bigfoot documentary. This is something that we had talked about doing for years, you know, almost a decade and we'd done narrative films prior. Um, and so we thought, you know, what a better way to, to avoid people than to be out in the forest doing chasing, you know, the ultimate, ultimate social distancer himself. (laughs) And so in June of 2020, we set out on our adventure and, um, we started shooting at a little conference on the Oregon coast, Bigfoot conference is kind of an invite only. And we ended up meeting Daryl Adams and we had recognized Daryl Adams from, um, a documentary we had watched prior called, uh, Bigfoot alien connection the alien Bigfoot connection, one or the other. Uh, so can correct me, but, um, uh, we sat Daryl down we interviewed him and we talked to him and we, at that point had been very keen to contact Tobe and Daryl because they were local. Their story was incredible. And we thought this is something we really want to, you know, explore. And, you know, their segment in that documentary was relatively short, maybe 10 minutes. And so we thought this is this is a great story for us. You know, let's get a hold of them. And so shortly thereafter, I contacted Tobe, and we quickly realized that Tobe was very connected within the um, the world, the Bigfoot world, and slash the paranormal kind of mysterious world. And so we thought, you know, we need to bring him on as co-producer on this film. He's got a tremendous amount to add to the product. So that's really how it began. Tobe, can you tell us a little bit about that Bigfoot experience that you had? Well, since the mid-2000s, the Bigfoot experiences have kind of overlapped and overlaid. And uh, I've kept, you know, digilent, diligent notes uh, along the way here by uh, having conferences, recording everything. Uh, we would have monthly meetups in the McKenzie Valley where we'd have witness testimony in a little mom pa pizza parlor. And so it started off small, but along the way here, um, I got invested in looking at t- two particular types of research. Those would be the physical uh, experiences and those who are saying there's something else going on. So the, the people involved in the world of Sasquatch research, you'll quickly learn, believe that there's a flesh and blood answer. And then there's this other category. And I tried to flush out 
just mainly over being frustrated. And I wanted to make the uh, correct choice first that um, the people that were saying that there were these stranger aspects to Sasquatch seem to have um, contact more often. And so they were, they're very open. They would invite me out to their place and they pretty much just gave me the keys to their kingdom. Uh, in this case, their backyard or the acreage behind them. And so those experiences uh, started off with what I would call maybe incidental experiences where things would be moved, uh, including large objects like, you know, my tent put in a tree. That was pretty strange. That was one of the first moments of, you know, me scratching my head saying, oh, wait a second. Um, and then there were the gifts that would show up included in that or strange stick structures that are placed at certain spots where you would find them, strange objects placed where you would find them. And then, of course, the sounds and um, what I would call maybe looking at shadows that shouldn't be there in the trees. So it started off with those, you know, a little bit ambig uh, ambiguous at first, but then um, things snowballed into uh, the phenomena, we'll call it coming closer and closer to me and the witnesses. And that's where Brett and Jill came in to a place in Cottage Grove called the Al Moon Lab. Uh, where the Adams family, that's their real name, Daryl and Cindy Adams, uh, had me basically live and research on their property for the better part of a year and a half. Did you ever see Bigfoot yourself with your own eyes? Well, <clears throat> the things that I've seen uh, along the way here, I think may be related to Bigfoot, but the closest I've ever come to actually seeing something happen at the Al Moon Lab, and in short, uh, I had been waiting, like I said, for quite a while to have an experience like this. So I knew that the uh, the property I was at was probably going to yield a full-on sighting. So one night on a moonless night, laying out on the gravel in a zero-gravity chair, which is just an extended lawn chair behind my Jeep Commander, uh, yeah, I saw what, in my opinion, could only be the legs of a Sasquatch standing behind my Jeep at about 40 feet away. And um, it noticed me just based upon the fact that I noticed it. And, um, you know, it, it was all gravel uh, in that area there. And um, I heard the slight crunch. I saw the, the foot extend and place itself in a reversal pose and then run away. Um, but, you know, if you're going to see Bigfoot, you might as well see its big feet. And so that's what I saw. Now, when you saw it, what was your emotional reaction to it? Surprise, excitement, fear? Yeah, I'm an adrenaline junkie. So for me, I was chasing that uh, constantly, still am. And uh, so for me, it was in a total, you know, endorphin rush. And uh, the, of course, fear, because, you know, you're laying out there alone. You don't know what the move is going to be made. I, I'd come to, to kind of know the phenomena, maybe even know that Sasquatch that was looking at me because we had a tremendous amount of forensic evidence, handprints, um, you know, uh, aspirations from sneezes on the property against the vinyl awning of my camper, hair samples, uh, footprints, knee prints. And so we were kind of playing this cat and mouse game. And so I was ready for a full on visit and see, you know, the full phenomena present itself. But, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was certainly nervous about that moment. And when it left, I was kind of sad that I didn't get to see the, the whole thing.
there are a lot of Bigfoot documentaries out there. What makes your film different from the other ones? So there's, I, I think there's a variety of things that, that set us apart. Um, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do, uh, we knew right off the bat was to really show the character of Bigfoot. It was important to us to, um, to say that, that this is not some sort of a monster. This is not some sort of a threat. And it's not to say that, that they're not going to protect their own. And, and there are many, many witnesses that talk about feeling um, unwanted and being chased out of a certain area. And that makes sense. You know, I'm, um, if you were to wander into somebody else's home, you'd get the same reaction. And that doesn't mean that the homeowner is not a nice person. So that's the first and foremost. The second, I think, the second thing I think that, that separates us is the fact that we really wanted to hone in on the emotional impact of the eyewitnesses and the psychology of the eyewitnesses in the, in the, uh, the hours and the days and the weeks that follow, sometimes months and years. And so we really get into that in the um, latter half of the film in the second act. And we talk to um, a Yale-educated psychologist by the name of Michael Adams. And Dr. Adams goes through the, um, the way that a brain processes, a memory processes, a sighting processes, trauma. And in addition to Dr. Adams, we also talk to a hypnotherapist by the name of Doug Meacham, who does kind of the same thing. And, and you know, obviously he puts somebody in, into um, under hypnosis and he kind of goes back through that sighting of that individual. And the brain is kind of like an old VHS player. You can pause, you can rewind, you can fast forward. And um, these individuals are able to recount in detail their experiences, whether they're a few weeks or a few years or longer. Um, so those, I think those are really two of the biggest components that really kind of set ourselves apart. The other is that we're much more of a traditional documentary in terms of traditional interviews as opposed to um, out in the field. You know, there is some of that stuff in our documentary, but we really wanted to kind of hone in on the, the human experience. One thing that I like about your trailer is that I guess you would say one of the interviewees that I saw recounted seeing a Sasquatch and its child together. And I like that because, in my opinion, if Bigfoot is there and not an alien or not a hologram, but, a, um, you know, there's a community of Bigfoot here, that means that there has to be a breeding population of them. So at least noting that there's a child there suggests that there is. Yeah. I mean, that was something that really, that was the, that was the experience of Chad and Austin. Um, two friends that went up to a, a remote lake in extreme Southern Oregon near the California border. And their intention was to do YouTube survival videos. So Chad's wife dropped them off. That's what they wanted. So they didn't have a vehicle. Um, and then once where she dropped them off, it's quite a bit of a hike. It's maybe a mile and a half nearly straight uphill, straight up a mountain to this lake. And so they were out there and, and doing these survival videos. They had made a camp up a slope about 150, 200 feet. Not a real easy hike to where their camp was. And um, they had left their cameras there and, and wandered down to the lake to do some fishing to try and catch some, some fish for the night and for a, a meal. 
to make ends meet, as Austin says in the documentary. And while they were down there, they saw this thing on a log with, you know, a smaller juvenile. And it really struck them how, you know, and it says this in the trailer, this is no spoiler, how it moved its child behind it in order to protect it. Um, this is new. I have not heard of any sightings, you know, and I'm sure there's there's something out there, but I personally have not heard of any sightings where we see that kind of um, protective mechanism like, you know, a father would do or a mother would do for a child if they didn't want that, you know, child to see something um, or maybe it was too young to to know about the human existence. I don't know, but I felt like there was a great deal of humanity there. Um, a great deal of sentience and intelligence. And um, I think that says a lot in the fact that Chad and Austin were together um, really helps, you know, quantify that, that sighting as well. I mean, both of those guys were really emotionally changed by that experience. Tobe, you mentioned earlier the sounds of Bigfoot. Are you talking about the sounds that you hear them walking or sounds that they, you know, that it actually makes grunting, moaning, screaming type of sounds? Right. Um, there's a whole discipline to breaking down this audio. And uh, we were basically in the school of hard knocks, figuring out how to record sound uh, in particular with little task mdr 5 recorders that I don't leave home without. And we had those placed all around the property. So it was a multidisciplinary thing that went on for over 1,400 hours by the end of it all. And so um, what we found is that um, whatever was approaching this gravel driveway was very careful when it did it because sometimes it didn't make sound, but yet it would come up to the recorder, which was really impossible for us to do. Certainly something over a thousand pounds on two legs or four legs to do. And um, so, yeah, when I say vocalizations or sounds, um, I mean something more than grunts and groans. Um, it gets into whistles. It gets into mimicry. It gets into language. Um, language, let's just stop there. Um, I think that language between big foots or big feet exist, um, and they have to be in a group of two or more before they do it. So I think there's examples of that in the audio we have um, in our book, at least. Certainly, if you go back and hear other witness testimony about Bigfoot language, one of the people that speak about this and friend of mine is Ron Moorhead, where a group of hunters in the high Sierras over a prolonged period of time went to debunk uh, the Bigfoot evidence that they were gathering at their remote hunting site. And included in that is more forensic anomalies of what is a unknown language and how do we know it's a language well because there's something called morphine streams and um, that gets into understanding this uh, partner of his scott nelson who's a navy crypto linguist so in concert over the last 30 or 40 years right brett um ron has really come back with tangible evidence it's never really been debunked um by anybody with a degree that have taken apart Ron's stuff and said, you know, that's been, that's been fake, that's been hoaxed, or it's uh, misunderstood. 
there's something there because after you've been going at it as hard as I have for the better part of 15 years, um, I've played these sounds before for people, um, you know, and put the cans over the ears at a Bigfoot event. And um, you watch a grown man well up in tears because it's been years since they've heard validation that they heard that sound that one day in the woods. And these people, uh, and Brett can explain this further, these are lifelong hunters. That is their passion, you know, just as much as it is for somebody to go to church. <clears throat> these guys go grab their bow and their rifle and they head to go hunting. And for someone to give that up, it's a big deal. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of remorse, I'm sure, when those tears come, come down. But there's also validation that they heard what they heard. Are you saying that they're general hunters, like deer hunters, and they're giving that up? Or they're Bigfoot hunters? Oh, no. Um, definitely just general sportsman hunters, people that um, you know are hunting bear or deer or uh, something that effect, or duck or whatever, even fishermen. And um, they've given up that passion. They're not Bigfooters at all. They've only maybe seen or heard something in particular. But it's such a profound... Uh, life-altering, shifting moment for them that it is like a religious experience or like a near-death experience. After I was reviewing some of your videos here, the the profound nature of having an ND. I've talked to these people as well. Um, they will never forget that day, and from that moment, they look at their life completely different, um, and it may shift things around as far as priorities are concerned they are not neatly put inside a box anymore and they have to live in these gray areas like well what is life what is this and a bigfoot witness is just the same and that's the neat thing about this film is that you sit one-on-one -on -one as an audience member and that witness and they fill the screen and they tell you what happened and it uh, i get goosebumps even explaining it you know these are th family traditions with these hunters so this isn't just, um, this is a big deal because we're talking about brothers, cousins, uncles, fathers, grandfathers that are trying to pull these guys that have had these experiences back out into the woods and they won't go. You know, um, Chad faced this. Chad was a hunter <clears throat> who I just spoke about. And he was getting calls all the time from friends and relatives to go out hunting and he wouldn't go. And that's really when it started to click with his wife because she was skeptical at first, but she really started realizing very quickly that if he's not going hunting, then, then this really happened to him. So it's, um, the, the, you know, the emotional response by some of these men, like Tobe was saying that, that, that are, that are crying, um, is to me pretty profound, uh, evidence. And, you know, people say, well, yeah, it's anecdotal, but not with that kind of an emotional response. You know, um, there was a there was a short series called Sasquatch. It was on Hulu. And for the most part, I thought it was kind of a throwaway series. Um, but it, it's kind of about the um, the drug trade in, in Humboldt County, California. And they kind of like fooled the audience and they interviewed some people that had had Bigfoot experiences. And really the, 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 the documentary series is not really about Bigfoot. It's kind of a, a bait and switch. But in that film, they interviewed a man who was a former police officer 
and and he was i believe he was out fishing and the guy just starts bawling on camera just starts bawling on camera about what he saw and how he'll never forget that day and how it impacted him so much i mean if there's any reason to watch that series is that guy's testimony mm-hmm. um and this is not uncommon you know amy boo who um was on uh, coast to coast am last night as a matter of fact talked about um in our in our film how she would go to sportsman's shows and she'd set up a table, you know, that would say something like, if you've had a Bigfoot experience, I want to talk to you. And these guys would come in, you know, in threes, fours, fives, they're buddies, you know, they're tough. They come in and they'd look at it and, oh, yeah, ha, 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 and they'd walk by. And then like 15, 20 minutes later, one of the guys would, would kind of sneak back and look around and say, look, I'm so glad you're here. I've got to talk to you, but I can't do it right now in front of my friends. You know, but I have this profound sighting and then they'll they'll connect offline. So, I mean, this is this is real. This is this is real when you've got these kinds of guys, these macho, tough guys that have been doing this again, like as a family tradition and they're having these experiences. Yeah, there's something definitively going on. Why do you think they have such a strong emotional reaction? Is it due to the shock? or the surprise of seeing it, or is it fear? And and to follow that up, is that why they won't go back out hunting again because they're so afraid of seeing it? I think it's a combination of, I think it starts off as fear and turns into shock. I think, I think there's a various um, bunch of emotions. Rich Germeau in the documentary talks about how he, you know, he went from really kind of shock and awe to anger because he felt betrayed because he felt like he, he had been lied to um, that, you know, somebody wasn't telling him truth. He was brought up in the traditional education system and, and it failed him because if these things are real, somebody's got to know about them. Then why aren't they telling him? Why aren't they telling the public? Um, for other folks, it's a situation where, you know, they, they have this, sighting of this thing that is obviously the apex predator and they see the the muscle they see you know a figure that's eight nine feet tall uh you know that's bigger than any you know human being in history and they know immediately that this thing could with you know essentially a flick of the fingers could kill them rip them apart you know and so i think that you know as humans we still have our you know primordial instincts this fight or flight kind of instincts and i think that that's where that that fear really boils up because you just don't know you don't know what's going to happen but what what you do know is what you're looking at is capable of killing you without much effort just to reiterate that fear part there um i don't necessarily think the witnesses know uh the full ramifications of what's happened to them and partly it's due to the fact that there's this division that automatically happens with the witness and their worldview, because you no longer fit into that box anymore, as I was explaining. And in that box is your secure world, your wife, your family, the dynamic, the church, the job, all those things fit neatly in that worldview. And I think that fear is an instinct is like, oh no, I'm being pulled out of the safety zone of this network of people that understand me. Now you get that from Rich plainly. There's this anger, just like 
I don't want this to happen. I don't want to know, you know, I do want to know about this, but how am I going to approach this as a previous lawman? Um, how do I look at this? Because it's not just, you know, the, what we described here, that none of these are scary encounters. It's literally the, the rug getting pulled out underneath these people. Uh, you know, I've been chasing this myself, right? These people, a lot of them haven't. They happened upon these rabbit holes. And some have cho chosen to go down into these rabbit holes and others, are, you know, if you ask them, they say they would never want to do it again. And you get that impression off a couple of these witnesses as well. So, um, you know, that's the tricky part about this thing is when you get to know these witnesses, it's hard to get into the nitty gritty, even though I think that's where this documentary kind of, it's, it's leaning on the edge of where to go with these witnesses and what the family dynamics are and you get a sense of it. And, um, but in my case, yeah, it divided, uh, some relationships I had, some of them temporarily and some of them long-term. And, uh, at a certain point you just have to decide what's more important truth. Are you, are you going to let the truth just remain uh, a memory or are you going to pursue this truth? Uh, either way, it's true. So after your encounter, how did you change as a person? Well, it wasn't so much what I described as an encounter in Cottage Grove at the Al Moon Lab. Um, what really changed me and my priorities uh, was seeing, and we get into this in the second half, was the supernatural that is involved with pursuing this phenomena. And once I saw that unfold in front of me and another witness, that's my you know, Rich Germo moment where it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, it's all of this is true. It's not, you know, I don't have to make up stories in order for this to be real. I can go to this place and I can have a fairly inexplicable magic, magical experience on top of all this Bigfoot stuff. Um, and I don't, I won't get into it all, but um, in short, there's some things that happen when you go Bigfooting that are just otherworldly. And most of these people, we call them apers, uh, people that think this is only an ape or a you know, hybrid or giganopithecus is another word they use, a relic hominid. They use you know, Newtonian science to explain all this. And that gets in the way of this other stuff that happens to them, although they'll cling to the story that they um, you know, can explain all this through Newtonian science, they will just totally omit the uh, the more magical stuff that happens in the woods when you're around Bigfoot. After watching this film, will the average viewer come to the conclusion that yes, Bigfoot is real? That's a great question. Um, I'd like to think so. Uh, I, I know that, yes, there will be some people, we have had some people that have uh, really kind of had that paradigm shift. Um, you know, some, some of the, the audience, it depends on, you know, their background and, you know, we all as audience members, we all bring our, our own life experience into the film, you know, and there's a saying in Hollywood that, that nobody ever sees the same film. So, you know, if you're, if you're a, a tried and true skeptic, you, you're probably going to come out maybe, you know, with some, some different thoughts, but we go into this a little bit into the psychology of somebody that has a rigid, you know, inside the box, perspective in life you know it's going to be difficult to change that 
perspective, we hope to move the needle with some of those folks because we really want to show the data and we do show the data. You know, we interviewed Scott Tompkins with Bigfoot Mapping Project and we're looking at points on a map of the Bigfoot sighting or a, a track or a sound, one of the three. And, you know, this, the, the continental United States is lit, lit up like a Christmas tree of all of these dots. And I feel like it's pretty easy to ask the question, is each and every single one of those something other than a Bigfoot? Because if the answer is no, then Bigfoot exists. You know, and we're talking about tens of thousands of reports of eyewitness reports, some of them great, some of the class A, as they say, and some of them, you know, not so great. Maybe they heard a weird noise and they reported it. But for every single one of those points on the map that's been cataloged, there's how many other thousands that haven't been reported? You know, I mean, the majority of the witnesses that, that we interviewed in this film, they're not on that map. They didn't report it, you know, they're reporting it in our film, but they didn't report it to that database. So, you know, we're talking, we're now talking about statistics. We're talking about math. We're talking about numbers and the data tells the story. And we, we really press that. So I would really challenge a skeptic to come back and explain that away. It's really difficult to do. And the reason why we're doing a chapter two that discusses the paranormals because the paranormal is no different. It's no different in regards to a lot of these Bigfoot sightings. There's a paranormal component to it. Um, and the data backs it up, you know, there. So yeah, it's, I mean, there's some, there's some fascinating hard numbers out there that I think people really need to take a, take a closer look at. In your opinion, are the Bigfoot, a living community that is here on the planet, you know, 24 hours a day, or do you think that they're interdimensional beings that kind of come and go or, or something else? Tob? Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, well, there's a lot of head scratchers when it comes to Bigfoot stuff. And what I'll say is that um, they do whatever they want. I don't think that uh, we're going to get to the bottom of this with a documentary. Uh, I don't know what science already knows about this. I feel as though they probably know a lot just based upon what's going on with the UFO stuff. And the fact is they're not coming to guys like me to ask questions. So it's a tricky thing. I mean, I used to say that, you know, not having a body is the evidence that there's something else going on. The lack of evidence is evidence. Now, I don't know if that fully fits the story as much anymore because um, there there seems to be evidence of anomalies around their areas, things that you can measure, things that you can see. Now that we have FLIR camera, I think that kind of ties them up a little bit. Like we're getting evidence on FLIR uh, in a way that we could never get evidence before with cameras, um, although they seem to know perfectly well what a camera is and electronics in general they seem to know intent they seem to know motives they seem to know about man's ego which i know sounds kind of bizarre but if we're talking about uh, a type of people it's a different quantity of sorts they've 
It had longer to think about this and less distraction. And so for that, there's a lot we could learn. I don't think we are. I think some people have learned uh, how to be more like them and uh, perhaps sit around a campfire with them. And we, we haven't got those testimonies on film yet, but I've certainly talked to witnesses who say as much. But to answer your question, do they go into a portal? I haven't seen a Bigfoot do it, so I don't know. From what you both are suggesting, not only are they bigger than us, but to me it sounds like they must be more intelligent than us because one, they're still you know able to be elusive from us as well as, you know, as you were saying, if they know our intent, they know about all these electronics. I just think that they're more connected. Uh, they seem to be a part of the environment <clears throat> in a way that we're just not. Uh, and maybe it's due to the distractions, things that uh, are, are simple for to, us to understand, like a cell phone. Um, however, there is this, uh, you know, I use this analogy. I don't know if this works for everybody, but a human in their environment, especially with the electronics, is tantamount to a tiny sliver that you can't really see, but you can feel it. And you know you want to pick it out. And I think that's how they respond to us um, most of the time. Now, they seem to tolerate us more when they come to us, and maybe they're the sliver in our hand. But um, that seems to be the way it goes, is that uh, they they have a limited amount of um, attention that they want to focus in on you when you're in their habitat. Mostly, they're, they're getting out of the way and moving on. I mean, any of the photographic or video evidence that we have seems to show them fleeing. Uh, certainly not a monster in the woods chasing them down, but that's, uh, I think that's possible. I, I don't say that's not possible. I don't think they're a big Harry and the Henderson situation at all. Uh, they're an alpha predator, an ambush predator with the attributes of humanity attached to them. It's interesting that you brought that up because I don't know of any reports of Bigfoot's big feet not sure how you pluralize that but attacking humans is there yeah there's kidnappings mm -hmm. there's there's been some documented kidnapping case with the, the most famous one being albert osman and he's got quite a story i would encourage viewers to to look up albert's stories back in i believe the 1920s in canada um i don't i'm not aware of any um I mean, I think there there was a rumor at one point that the uh, uh, Sasquatch attacked somebody and ripped an arm off. Um, Tobe might know more about that. Um, I I have heard a story um, that there was a man who fell in the forest. He had an accident, and he was awoken by a a Sasquatch, as if the Sasquatch was caring for them. Um, and the man had a gun and pulled the gun on Sasquatch just because he had just kind of woke up and was shocked at what he was seeing. And the Sasquatch kind of let out a, a, a cry, a wail, and then took off into the woods. I have heard that story. And I, I think that's a real story. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I Tobe might have more of a, um, more to add to that. Most of this seems like teenage gamesmanship or like a fraternal order initiation of some kind and the natives would talk about that at great length when i got involved with this that's the trickster element of the you know the hairy man and so 
that's been my experience is that, that you um, you have this trickster prankster element to the phenomena. Um, one of the things that happened to us and happened to me privately, but in particular regarding the Al Moon Lab, is that we would have things run up behind us or between us in the gravel yard on two legs. And it was unmistakably a large bipedal, it was a human type something um, that you could not see, but it was plain as day that it was running between you and getting as close to you as it could before it fled into the trees. And I'm talking less than two feet away. Um, and you'll hear those kind of stories all the time from pe people that are invested in this as only Newtonian science or flesh and blood answers. And they'll just pass it off and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a trained observer, but I missed the, the hairy beast that time and it got away from me. No, this happens in the daytime too. That, that excuse doesn't fly, especially for daytime stuff. Um, so that's been my experience with it. What do you think is the most compelling evidence in your film? Oh boy. Um, we have a lot of compelling evidence in my opinion. Um, we have a, we have a photograph from Central Oregon coast from a wildlife cam that we do a measurement on that, that, that is pretty incredible. Quite honestly, I think that the best evidence is really going back to Patty. And we talked to a man named Henry Franzoni who in the late nineties was um, paid a significant amount of money to, with other scientists to debunk the Patterson Gimlin film and they couldn't do it. And this was really cutting edge technology at the time and technology uh, even to this day as you're able to up-res that film footage into 4k um and really get into it technology is really doing doing us all a favor in proving that that patty was most likely indeed an, an actual sasquatch and so we talk about that in the film and we go into that um in depth we talk about how you know, they were able to observe muscles moving underneath the, the skin and um, how there's a um, uh, forgetting the, the name of it right now, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a point at the back of the skull that the muscles connect um, that, that show that it's more of a hominoid than it is an ape. So I think that that is some really compelling evidence in the way that we break that down. Um, you know, there's another case that was investigated in Florida by Diane Stocking Meese, where there was um, skin residue. Um, you can see the fur uh, that was left on a window down in Florida of, of a Bigfoot that was peering into a window. So we've got some photographs of that. Um, and, I, and again, I think the emotional testimony of the eyewitnesses is, you know, if you were to if you were to throw Bigfoot into court. I think you'd have a conviction that Bigfoot was real based on some of the eyewitness testimony. So I think all in all, you know, we've, we've got quite a bit of compelling evidence. I'm in Texas and I don't know if there are any Bigfoot sightings here. Maybe if there are, it's probably up in Northeast Texas where it's more of a wooded area, but in Oregon or Washington or Northern California, are there any laws that protect Bigfoot? Yes, there's a lot in Skamania County, Washington, as a matter of fact, um, that protects Bigfoot. And it's, it's changed over the years, but uh, I 
think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's pretty close to a murder charge um, if you kill one. There was a law here in Oregon. I don't know if it still stands. Um, and I don't know that it was that significant. There's a, a Whatcom County, Washington State, which is near Bellingham, or Bellingham, I think, is in Whatcom County, has been designated a Sasquatch sanctuary. So, yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely some some laws that have been passed. I would like to see, um, you know, any and every state that has had a Sasquatch sighting pass a law that, that protect these beings. How close do you think we are to finally capturing one? I'll let, I'll, I'll pass that ball to Tobe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we haven't already. Um, I don't know how that would work. Maybe not accidental. Maybe one was given to the government. You hear stories about that all the time. Um, certainly, I have a friend of mine, Jerry Hine, who's pulled a couple fast ones on the 911 system to see if they'll respond quickly to, in this case, uh, pull off a, a staged event uh, of him hitting a Sasquatch on the highway and then him hiding in the brush to see if you know, 911 actually shows up to retrieve a, a body. And according to Jerry, uh, some men in black or blacked out SUVs uh, came to grab whatever evidence wasn't there. So mm -hmm. that points to the fact that maybe they have these cleanup teams. See, our issue is, is, again, we have to talk about UFOs here when we talk about Bigfoot. Do Does the government have crash retrieval do they have more than um, granules of alien craft material and i think that they probably have that i mean they're they're basically admitting to the public here slowly with little dribs and drabs that um that we uh, you know have contact with something else and i think that day will come for bigfoot you probably shouldn't have the sasquatch dna in and around your facility, your house, your acreage, according to Native Americans, including uh, Mel Scahan, who's uh, Yakima Native American in our film. He, he spoke, and I don't know if uh, he'll speak more in part two, but speaks about the consequences of having a body, the consequences of having Sasquatch hair. And there it gets into more of a spiritual, supernatural uh, consequence of having latent Sasquatch DNA in and around you. So if that's true, if uh, the government does have stuff like that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of, um, you know, unique things happening in and around that, that poor body. And just to add to that real quick, Jeff, um, we get into this in the documentary and we interview a gentleman who is a former army intelligence analyst and I think people are going to be surprised to hear what he has to say. I'll leave it at that. All right. So we know Tobes had an actual sighting of one. For you, Brett, what was it that convinced you that Bigfoot was real? Is it one actual event or just the combination of all the events from your film? It's a great question. Um, for me, it was the eyewitness testimony. Uh, I just just feel like I've always had a great instinct as to tell when someone is lying, telling the truth. And again, it, you know, we're talking about massive numbers of, of individuals that are telling the same story. 
And we're talking about people who have had very detailed descriptions of what they've seen. And I, you know, I don't trust everybody immediately. Sometimes it takes some thought, but um, I, you know, I do believe these people. Um, I do believe that they've seen something, um, you know, and everything else that we've found throughout the process of doing this documentary is just really kind of firmed up those beliefs, you know, from, from the structures to something we're going to get into, into the second chapter the gifting. Um, there's just too much, in my opinion, too much evidence to refute the, the existence of Bigfoot. Again, since I live in Texas, we don't generally talk about Bigfoot down here. I would probably say the, the most paranormal thing we talk about here is the chupacabra, which is like some kind of goat monster animal. But up there in Oregon, Washington, Northern California, is Bigfoot really popular among the community? And is it something that's commonly talked about? Or is it still kind of talked about, you know, only in in groups behind closed doors and kind of, you know, frowned upon? Um, I'll answer that and I'll let Tobe kind of finish up. But yes, I mean, we joke that, that our movie stars... Um, an A-list movie star who doesn't make a single appearance in the film. Um, mm. They're very popular in the Pacific Northwest. And I'd say all the way down to probably the Bay Area of, San, of California. Uh, you see cars with stickers on them. Uh, you see people wearing their T-shirts. You know, when you're at the Portland International Airport, they've got all kinds of Sasquatch memorabilia for sale. Um you know, same thing with Seattle. Um, I, I think that that people just really are endeared to this uh, local myth, legend, whatever they want to call it. We know it's real. Um, and, you know, they he's kind of a mascot, I guess you you could say, of the Pacific Northwest. And, it, and it's part of our culture and it's been part of the culture of the indigenous folks for thousands of years. So um, I only see that growing as more and pe more and more people come forward with their stories. Um, part of the reason that we did this documentary is we wanted to normalize the conversation. If you've had a sighting of Bigfoot, it should be okay to talk about it. There shouldn't be a ridicule. So yeah, it, you know, again, I'll let I'll let Tobe kind of sum up, you know, from his perspective. Yeah, it's an it's an, it's an interesting quandary because. You have something cute and cuddly that you can make a, a stuffed animal out of. And I could see why people do it. And they're so unique looking as far as the giggle factor associated with it. I don't really know what to think of that because there seems to be, you know, there's this majesty and this um, reverence to these sightings. I mean, you have families that have been, and families that have been divided over their sighting and such. So what do you do with something like that? Do you make a, a magnet out of it? Do you make a coloring book? Do you sell jerky with it? I guess you do if you don't believe it to be real. Um, and then I say that and I make wood sculptures out of them. So, <laughs> so for me, you know, I'm a walking contradiction. And, um, you know, maybe part of me is a little resentful over those wood watchers, I call them, that I carve. But, um, yeah, it's a difficult one for me because I think eventually it's going to be uh, the tide's going to turn and people will 
come to see that this phenomenon is very real, like UFOs and the abduction scenarios with the greys and ghosts, of course, I think it fits into that category. And, um, you know, most people believe in ghosts, by the way, you can't find really anybody who doesn't believe in the spirit world anymore. And they, they have one factor of it or one story. But when it comes to this, it's just such an outlandish thing. And so for that, I could see why, you know, we have lots of patents in China. <laughs> Do you carve these Bigfoots because it's an obsession? Kind of like the character in Close Encounters where he keeps making Devil's Tower out of mashed potatoes? That's how my book opens um, to the story of Roy Neary. And so this obsessive quality to making effigies a Sasquatch, uh, looking for them, uh, talking about them, your network of friends, your girlfriend, everything networked around Bigfoot, um, maybe is... Uh, viewed as unhealthy for a lot of people. And there is this balancing act of like, well, how much of this has gotten into my life? You know, what have I stopped doing and now become obsessed with doing? So, um, you know, I talked to those people as an interviewer myself uh, and now as an author and sitting down with them, you, you have to um, kind of hold a mirror up to yourself and say, okay, how much of this has gotten in the way? But um, in this case, I find that it's only really amped up uh, the good qualities in myself because it really is a self-reflection pursuit. If you can, if you can get over the fact that you're maybe not going to have a Bigfoot sighting that day in the woods and get into the fact that, Oh, this is all about losing ego, which is a big jump. I understand that. But um, in the end, that's what all this really is about is the shedding of the flesh and the shedding of ego. And again, you know, why are we all here? The profound nature of what we're actually looking for may be way beyond Sasquatch. Where can we watch the movie? So um, A Flash of Beauty is available on Amazon. Uh, you can rent it on YouTube, uh, Vimeo, Vudu, Google Play, and the Microsoft Store. And it is available in certain countries internationally. I know Canada and the UK are two countries that's available. Uh, we've been getting commentary from folks in Germany. Uh, so I believe it's available there. So it's out there. Um, it's not too hard to find. If you just Google a flash of beauty, you should be able to come up with uh, various places to watch it. I keep hearing you guys mention part two. Is it already in production? Yes. So part two is... is um, mostly shot we do have some more things that we need to film over the summer to add to it but um we expect to have that out within i'd say the next nine to twelve months as a filmmaker i'm just curious have you had a lot of success with it that it compels you to do more movies about this yes i think the the, the response has been really tremendous um the controversy notwithstanding um We've had, you know, great feedback. I, I feel like, you know, we're a fresh voice in the genre and we're kind of, we want to, you know, push this issue. We want pe more people to um, up their game, if you will. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I feel like it's starting to make a difference um, and it's going to take some time, I think. But 
you know, going forward, we have talked about doing some additional pieces after the sequel. One of the conversations is is doing a documentary about Ron Moorhead and his experiences. Um, you know, he's been doing this for over 40 years. So over 50 years, I'm sorry, almost, yeah, over 50 years, 1971. So uh, there's that conversation and or just doing it just doing a documentary on on somebody who's had multiple encounters. You know, we know individuals that have that are in their fifties and sixties that have had these encounters with families and clans since they were four or five years old. Um, so that's a potential documentary. So there is a wealth of stories and individuals that we could we could concentrate on and tell their stories. We mentioned your book earlier, Tobe. Is that available on Amazon? It is, yeah. It's called The Al Moon Lab, A Paranormal Experiment, and it's an interactive book. So as you read along, uh, you actually scan QR codes embedded in the page that are associated with the chapter, and then you can actually go to the scene as it unfolds because we had um, our smartphones at the ready and uh, a lot of audio that we can share and forensic evidence. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So are you working on a second book? I'm toying around with it now, maybe a co-author as well. And um, we'll see where that goes. But uh, I'm kind of leaning towards understanding uh, these peripheral issues a little more that involve Sasquatch, including these possible window areas or portal areas and people that have maybe interacted or gone into them. Do you guys have anything else that you're working on that you want us to know about? This is it for us. Uh, we are focused 100% on bringing the sequel to folks as soon as we can. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message about Bigfoot? You know, I think in, in some ways, Bigfoot might be an ambassador to the mysteries of the universe. I like that. <laughs> we said it at the same time. I right. like that. Well, guys, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate you both, and I wish you massive success with both of your films. Thank you, Jeff. Really appreciate you having us on. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day. You too. Take care. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara Podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.